Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet local and regional authors, and sometimes even farther afield with the magic of remote podcasting, and we hear them read their work. We are a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network, a uh, collection of Charlotte podcasts produced in and centering around the Queen City, and also a proud member of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, broadcasting radio shows and podcasts about authors to a worldwide audience. I'm Landis Wade, the producer and host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I'm the author of a trilogy of books where lawyers save Christmas, kind of a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street, and I write stories, and I love books, and I love dogs, and I love beaches and mountains and fly fishing and sports and reading and more. And I'm excited about today's episode, so let's get to it. In today's episode, we meet Lee Madalone, author of her debut novel, Homemaking, published by Harper Perennial. It's a story of three characters woven together in a moving, beautiful narrative of home, identity, and belonging. New York Times Book Review calls the novel a heady and somber debut, while author Scott McClanahan calls it the debut novel of the year. Lee starts the show with the reading from the opening chapter, War Child, where we learn that an unwanted female baby born in Tokyo is signed over to the state and then plucked from the orphanage and adopted by an American officer and his wife. Before, before, a young woman in a modest but pristine apartment in Tokyo paints a castle on paper, unlike any castle in Japan. Where is this castle? Her mother who secretly writes poetry on gum wrappers, whose ancestors created beauty with katana rather than pen, asks her daughter. She starts to answer, but her mother grabs the paper and flips it over. Your mind is a ship, she says. It will take you away from me and leave me here alone. Your hair is dirty. Why don't you do something about that? So this young woman, her name lost to the wrinkles of history, washes her hair, and it is clean and black and straight and falls at the arch of her bony shoulders. She is all bones, lanky and bendy like a strip of Wrigley's. We need, her mother says, and she probably said more tea or American Co. or toothpaste and sent her daughter out into the noontime street, into the crowded Tokyo Saturday, where families are sitting in parks or visiting grave sites of their mothers and fathers and grandmothers, who were unlucky enough to live in Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Though the events happened six years ago, these relatives still come here in order to remember, to show that they have not moved on entirely to Rockabilly and Look and Hirohito's beloved Superman, that they can still lay white chrysanthemums on their ancestors' tombs and thank their new god they never had to see Uncle Ryu like that, like they say he was found. And she is walking right beside the monument, and she stops. A man in uniform with white skin and blue eyes is kneeling in front of one of these tombs, and she may or may not have been angry at this intruder, at his intrusion, but more likely what she is feeling is her heart coming alive in her cotton shirt because he is different and beautiful, but likely just different. Beauty often being simply an aberration from the norm, a departure from her mother, from her own black hair, and because she is just as bold as her daughter will be, she will go up to this man and tap him on the shoulder and ask him if he would like to take a walk with her to Kinokinuya, where she is on the way to buy flour and toothpaste, where they also sell frozen Salisbury steak paired with carrots and peas. And his face is long and bony, and she identifies with this, and they walk off together down the cobblestone street. Things happen including a conversation in a park and a sneaking out to go to a club where other white men dance with brown girls. And they drink French aperitif and Japanese whiskey and are drunk but not too drunk to recognize joy. And they go to his room 
and she leaves a kiss on his cheek in the dark of the morning. She has slept too long, but she knows her mother won't wake for another three hours, and she is running down the street, back to the apartment, and inside now a problem is growing. That problem is Ayumi. Ayumi never knows her name is Ayumi because her mother, upon finding out she is pregnant, leaves home, prostrates herself at the door of a hospital, crying out in the midst of labor pains, and signs the baby over to the state, which the state doesn't want because this baby is a baby with blue eyes and brown skin, and to make matters worse, this baby is female. No one will want this baby. Some Franciscan nuns, some sisters, take this baby and place it in their orphanage, their brown faces peeking out from behind white habits, brown fingers reaching out of draping white sleeves to push the brown children with blue and green eyes on a merry-go-round painted with faded yellow ducks. And months later, an American officer comes in with his wife, and this child overhears one of the sisters say Loveland, the name like a line of poetry, the child who has poetry in her blood, and to this toddler, right as the American officer is walking by, reaches out a tiny two-year-old hand and touches the arm of his jacket. And he stops walking. He had his eyes on a baby boy on the other side of the room, a strong, haunched Japanese boy. But he stops and he swivels and he looks at her, this child with blue eyes and brown skin, a girl, but that doesn't matter. This child is his. Hey, listeners, before we dive into the interview here, I'd like to uh, thank you for taking some of your valuable time to listen to this episode today. We really appreciate it. Uh, I'd also like to let you know about a couple of benefits available to our listeners. If you sign up for our email list at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, we will send you a a free ebook, the first book in my Christmas courtroom trilogy. We promise not to spam you. That just takes way too much time. We just provide a biweekly newsletter let uh, listeners know what's coming and uh, allow you to engage with the show. Also, show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And finally, if you'd like to support your uh, favorite local independent bookstore and get audiobooks at the same time, uh, you can join libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O.fm, and if you use the promo code charlottereader, that's all one word, You may not be from Charlotte, but you can still be a Charlotte reader to get this benefit. When you use that promo code, you're going to get uh, two books for the price of one when you join at uh, Libro's $14.99 monthly membership level. This is a great way to support uh, your local independent bookstore and get uh, great audiobooks uh, at the same time. So check it out. And now, here's a little bit more about the author, followed by our conversation, more readings, and our writing life discussion. I hope you enjoy it. Lee Madalone teaches literature and creative writing at Clemson University. Her writing has been featured in many places, including Lit Hub, Electric Literature, The Offing, and The Rumpus. Wiki Wang, author of Chemistry, calls her debut novel, Homemaking, an intricate exploration of family and home, of mother and child, of friends, of women, and written with both precision and style. Lee, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so this is great. Uh, congratulations on uh, on the novel. Thanks. And also congratulations on being so young when it got published. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that's a good thing, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. What what about those writers that have success so early? Because you told me you uh, you actually uh, sold the book, you know, when you were twenty nine years old, and you just turned thirty on February 9th of this year, and then you released the book like a week later, right? So correct. Yeah. yeah. So how does all that feel? Um, It feels like it was a million years ago (laughs) now that we are three or four months into a pandemic. So I don't know. It's all still pretty surreal. Um, um, It's hard to really fathom that that happened. And I don't know. (laughs) Maybe that's true regardless of whatever age you are when you publish your first book. Yeah, so this uh, this episode is going to come out sometime in the October timeframe. We're recording here in, in June, and, and by that time, who knows? Maybe we'll have some kind of vaccine. Maybe we'll hope, <laughs> hope, hope for that. But but it, but it has been for you, um, you know, a not normal book. Of course, this will be your first book launch anyway, but still, you haven't been able to participate like you had hoped in going around to bookstores and doing all those things. How has that affected your sort of outlook on this whole project? 
Um, well, I, I joke with people that I don't suggest having your first book come out <laughs> during pandemic, but it's obviously it's not something you can control. So I, I got to do maybe a handful of events and have a launch in New York. And so I'm really grateful that those things happened. Um, I know a number of debuts who have not had that opportunity uh, and had to do everything online. So, um, I'm definitely grateful, but it has been weird. I was in Charleston, South Carolina, maybe two or three days before everything shut down. And it was this wonderful luncheon and it was a very social, um, just fun event. And I think it was kind of a nice send off <laughs> before we all went into the cloister. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I think it's made me think that really, or maybe revisit the idea that the whole thing is really about just writing and being with your words and your computer or whatever you write on. And it's really not about all the other stuff about publishing and events and all of that other um, noise, I guess, which I think is probably a healthy reminder. Yeah, well, I like this. So in, in a couple of years when you're, you know, you're going to be really, really famous and you're being interviewed, your top piece of advice when they ask you in writing is don't release your book during a pandemic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm never one for giving advice to other writers or like the tips, but I think that's probably one I'll stick with. <laughs> yeah. But, but interesting. I just, this thought just occurred to me, you've written this book uh, about home and we're going to talk about that idea throughout the episode today, um, which I think is, uh, there's a little uh, synchronization there between um that idea and where we are all stuck at the moment. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so may, maybe you got a sequel here somehow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I go back and forth and like, maybe this is a good book to come out right now since we're all thinking about our spaces much more than usual. But then also part of me says, I don't want to think about my house at all. I want to read an adventure novel with pirates. Right. And maybe that's what people want to read. I don't know, but yeah, the, the the one time that we want to be away from our home, you have a book released about home. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, although you know this this does raise a whole new definition of home. You know, trying to get comfortable in a space that uh, I don't know if you've experienced this, but uh, you know you're you're in a space a lot more than you were before, and so you start to see things, feel things maybe that you didn't before, and you start to see the clutter, and you start to figure right. you know what you need to do and all that kind of thing. Yeah, which I think maybe would allow readers to empathize more with what this one character in the novel is experiencing, where she's sort of, it feels sort of like she's trapped in her own home, not literally, but she is very much insulated and thinking about all of these corners of her house and every piece of furniture in it and what it means on a larger level, which I guess we're all maybe doing a little bit, so... Yeah, and it's uh, we're going to talk about the structure and the, this literary fiction and some some really good stuff here. But uh, first, I want to uh, talk about kind of a family connection here a little bit. Um, this first chapter, when I read it, I mean, it was just you know like a fire hose of information coming at you, right? You really cover a lot of ground in this first chapter. Uh, we only did a piece of it, but as you keep going, this you know this thing keeps progressing, um, and we start in Japan, right? And you've uh, you told me that your mother was also adopted from Japan, and like Chloe, um, you know who's going to be a main character here. Um, you are the child uh, of an adopted mother from Japan. So how did that influence your writing of this book? Um, I suppose. I mean, as far as the themes of the book and the sort of sense of uh, not fitting in or trying to figure out where you belong, I think those are ideas rooted in my personal story or my mother's story, sort of coming from a place um, that is foreign but having no ties to that place culturally, um, but then being very much an alien in your new family Um my mother is the only adopted child in her family. So that presents its own sort of complexity. And then um, growing up with like divorced parents and the suburbs and away from all of that, it's, I think all of this sort of creates a sense of um, um, 
just being a little bit out of sorts and wondering where your roots are and a lack of connection to a place. I think I've never really felt like there's one singular place that is home. And yet I think we're all trying to figure that out on some level, whether it's like, this is my baseball team or this is the state I'm from, this is my heritage. And I think I've never really had a singular identity or flag around which I can sort of rally. So um, yeah, I think that all of those preoccupations come from my own story and history. So the story of your mother uh, and the story of the mother in this book and the story of Chloe and your story are different. What are some of the main differences between the characters and the real life people? I, I wrote an essay on this for LitHub actually, because a lot of people would ask me about this. And I don't know if this happens to female writers more than male writers, but there's always a sort of obsession, I think, with the female writer's biography and how much it's tied into the creative work. And so I, I always like to say, I guess, that I would take the sort of superficial details of someone's life or my life and then use those as jumping off points for explorations that take you very far away from who those actual people are. So a lot of this book is very internal and introspective. And obviously I can never know the feelings of my mother or whatever. Um, so I think I just cherry picked the details that were convenient and interesting and then use those to create new people and new situations. So, so your path, uh, you went to school at university of Virginia, um, uh, uh, you then went to New York with the idea of going into the publishing business. And then you told me you fled to New Orleans for a month and then ended up staying four years, right? Right. Yeah. And why, why is that? What's in New, New Orleans that made you uh, hang around? New Orleans just has a very distinct, rich culture that I don't think exists anywhere else. I mean, not just that Kate, not just like the, the Creole culture being distinct, but any sort of place that has such a powerful culture. I just think New Orleans is singular in that way. And people there are just extremely in Louisiana in general, because I also lived in Southwest Louisiana, but people in Louisiana are just really warm and have a sort of appreciation for daily life. I think that a lot of mm, cultures maybe, or people in the rest of the country don't necessarily um, share at least on the surface. And I think it makes you feel really warm and great. <laughs> so after living in New York, which I found rel relatively isolating, um, I think I just needed a sort of embrace and New Orleans did that for me. And I think a lot of people end up thinking they've been in New Orleans short term and then just stay there <laughs> much longer. <laughs> the, the party never ended, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so you decided to pursue your master in fine arts, uh, in, in writing and, uh, then you're now teaching and, uh, what made you decide to pursue that path? Um, I'm a pretty practical person. And so I think that the academic life, if you can figure that out for yourself and you're lucky enough, um, can be a pretty nice balance um, so, and I really enjoy teaching and sort of learning all the time. I mean, most of my classes are discussion based, so it's really, um, teaching really offers a special space for just like growing constantly and learning and learning from your students and them learning from you. And, um, I get to talk about books and writing all day. I mean, who wouldn't? what writer wouldn't like to do that and get paid for it, I think, to a certain extent. So yeah, I'm very grateful for my position. And I think it's, I can't imagine doing um, or never having teaching being a critical component in my life. Yeah, that's great. We're going to talk more about your writing life before the episode's over. But for now, let's jump into this, uh, to this novel, Homemaking. Uh, and let's talk a little bit about the characters. We've got a read that's coming up that's going to introduce us a little bit more to Chloe's mother, uh, the woman who was adopted as a young toddler uh, in Japan. This this uh, this child has to journey to the U.S. She becomes an army brat. Uh, she moves around. Um, tell us about the mother. The mother is a very sort of in, independent, um, sort of willful person who's had to figure out a lot of things on her own. Um, her daughter is Chloe, who's another character in the book. And um, Sybil's a doctor. She's an OBGYN. So um, she's dealing with um, the sort of theme of motherhood and maternity in a very literal way. 
Um, and her sort of struggle, I suppose, if you could sum it up, is figuring out how to, again, fit in as the sort of biracial person in this sort of like neutral suburban space in which she lives, um, where, again, she's dissociated from her culture and um, is unmarried, has had a number of marriages. Um, so she's, I think I describe her as cold at one point, but she's not. I think she's just um, put up the sort of front in order to deal with all of these sort of adversities she's experienced in her life. She's actually a very devoted mother. Um, she just has somewhat, without giving anything away, a somewhat perverse way of showing it sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I saw that in, in the book as I read it. Uh, this little uh, read you're going to do is pretty short. It, it actually, uh, it, it kind of talks about her path a little bit pretty quickly, but then it, in some respects, it kind of lets you know that up until this point, Chloe really hasn't understood her mother. You know, it's the mother daughter thing. They've got this, you know, tension over the years. And, uh, but when Chloe is trying to set up her own home, she kind of realizes that maybe they have something in common. So with that little setup, uh, whenever you're ready, uh, take it away. Once an army brat, always an army brat. My mother likes to say as a child, due to the nature of my grandfather's work, she and her siblings were picked up and moved around every few years from Tucson to Stuttgart to Norfolk to Tucson again. This impermanence stunted her sense of home. Her desire to root was less like a dream or aspiration than a craving, a biological imperative. When she had me, she saw this other biological truth, me, as an opportunity to sate the itch for good. To settle, she and my father chose a cul-de-sac situated on the edge of a pond in an upper-middle-class suburb outside of D.C., among other people who wanted a little peace and quiet to raise their own. It was her chance to finally know a home. Even when he moved on from us, she stayed, kept the house for herself, for me. After two husbands, she had concluded that men only made homemaking more difficult. Alone, she could still preserve the fantasy of home. I know she will die there, in my childhood home, nondescriptly, in a neighborhood where a new set of yearners, dreamers, have taken root. After years of moving around, of willful impermanence, I want to settle too. I am only now realizing that I am just like her. Yeah, that's what I found interesting in, when I was looking at different reads in the book. Uh, she's just now realizing that she's just like her, that she wants to settle too. But I thought it was kind of funny in a, in a very literary way as you wrote it, but funny to me that... Uh, when you said men only make homemaking more difficult. <laughs> My wife would probably agree with that every now and then. <laughs> uh, and uh, also, um, but alone, she said she could still preserve the fantasy of home. So that's an interesting idea, right? Fantasy of home. What, what were you getting at there? What are you thinking about when you t think about the fantasy of home? Um, so I think all the characters in the novel are grappling with the sort of platonic ideal of home or the sort of standard of home that we inherit as Americans, sort of the, the house with the white picket fence and the shutters and the green yard and the flower box in the window, all that sort of um, perfect and viable idea that I think is nearly impossible to live up to. And um, so, yeah, I think the fantasy is something we all hold, but, work like when we push up against it with our own sort of uh less perfect realities it can be a little jarring um yeah and through this book it's interesting you've got uh in different chapters chloe's doing different things with this house that she's in and uh i guess just to set it up a little bit we should probably explain some of the different characters here we've got uh we've just talked about the mother we've talked about Chloe and their relationship. The mother's going to be coming in and out, but Chloe is actually separated from her husband at the moment. And her husband's going through a difficult medical procedure. Um, you kind of don't let us know too much about that. We kind of got to figure out on our own, maybe what was driving them apart, but she's in a new house that he's helped her pick out. And she's trying to go room by room by room by room 
in this book. And uh, what was this idea about tackling each room? I thought that was interesting. There's a line in the near the beginning of the book about um, this sort of mantra that her friends, the people that are close to her, give her to tell herself as, far as she's trying to sort of assemble this home. So they say, like, think of Rome, right? The idea of, like, Rome wasn't built in a day. So I think we whenever we're set with a challenging task, it's like break it down into its components and then tackle each one individually. So she's going room by room uh, instead of thinking about the house as this entire structure she has to deal with. Just like I can do the bathroom right now. Let me just think about this and contain my ideas in that space. Let's not get too overwhelmed with this sense of I have to paint the whole house. I have to deal with this and that. So it's a sort of practical approach. Yeah. yeah, and that's a good transition to our next read. Pretty short read about Chloe and uh, wanting to build a home. So uh, let's, let's read that and we'll talk more about this idea of home. I want to build a home. Or rather, I want to take this existing house and turn it into something where happiness can bloom. I will start with one room, stripping the yellowed wallpaper, melting and scrubbing old glue and yellow gloves. Or do I start with the floors? Do I have to refinish the floors first so that the shavings don't scratch up the fresh paint? Maybe I have that backward. Maybe I should paint first and then do the floors so that the paint doesn't drip onto the newly refinished wood. I built a home once, not so long ago, but I have forgotten the how-tos. How to re-grout shower tile. How to hang a picture on a stud. As if my brain has decided that recollecting was detrimental to my survival. Someone built this house for a family. I constantly feel like I'm intruding on someone else's domestic life. Every time I forget to turn off the faucet when I'm boiling water, I think that a mother will run over and chastise me. When I play music late at night, I feel like a little boy will come down the stairs, onesied feet patting on the hardwood, and say, I'm trying to sleep. Will you please turn that down? This doesn't feel like my home, I tell people. Part of me knows that this wasn't built for me. Now, Lee, you can see in this uh, reading, or at least I'm seeing in the reading, that uh, you know she had built this a home once, and she's sort of struggling with this idea of building it again. She's in a new space. She's in a new environment. She thinks maybe, you know, who's been here before? You've moved from your favorite location of New Orleans to... South Carolina. You've got a new, you're teaching at Clemson. Did you have some of these same thoughts when you moved into your space at the moment? <laughs> um, I'm actually living in a weird apartment now for the first time since college. Um, so it's a sort of different relationship to space um, and people in general. So I think my brain is a little um, muddled still, <laughs> even after nearly a year here. But I actually am thinking about buying a house for the first time. So maybe some of these ideas are circulating for sure. So what does it say about Lee Madelone, the author of this book, Homemaking, whose character is struggling to put things up in the house that uh, I'm looking behind you. There's nothing on your wall. You gotta... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The ceilings in this apartment are really high. So the idea of hanging pictures seemed a little daunting. Not sure what, what level you hang them, et cetera. It's like, no. <laughs> so, okay. We hadn't gotten around to hanging pictures yet. All right, well, let's talk about this idea of home for just a minute. Uh, you spend 194 pages d dissecting this topic of home and homemaking. It's, it's probably unfair to me to ask you to sort of define what it means because you took 194 pages to explain to explain that but sort of in an economy of words um you know which is one of your specialties you know that you you do let me ask you what first comes to mind for you when you hear the word home the first thing that comes to mind is something that Bo says um chloe's best friend about um home is a place to rest one's haunches and where you can argue and make love to people with people um it's sort of just this i don't know space away from the world um there's a lot of quotes in the book about what a home exactly is um but i think that Bo probably has the close idea of it even though his relationship to home is also fraught yeah, yeah i was wondering uh, what was it that drew you to analyze this uh topic uh in, in literary fiction? Was it your youth? Was it the changing world in which we live to where 
you know, your generation uh, might have some different ideas on space and where you, how much of it you actually need, you know, to live a responsible life. Uh, was it something else? Home in general, you mean? Yeah. Um, I think it's definitely different or the idea of home is definitely different for my generation, which I suppose would be the millennial generation. If you have to put an ugly label on it, um, then my parents or, uh, the generation prior to ours. So I don't know. I think, um, I went to college and then the economy crashed and, um, well, we grew up with nine 11 being the main sort of event of our youth, and then the economy crashed and then now it's crashing again and we have a pandemic. And I think it's sort of been like cataclysm after cataclysm. And I think the idea of stability is just such um, an illusion, I think. And we recognize that. And maybe I think uh, previous generations held on to that and they could, but the world doesn't necessarily allow us to do that anymore. So um home, which is this idea or metaphor for stability is much more complicated. I think, um, I mean, most of my friends rent, they don't own, um, uh, it's, which is fine. It's just sort of a different way of conceptualizing home. We have roommates, we move around every few years. It's so what does that mean anymore? Like what is a home when it's not like this house with a picket fence? I don't know. Yeah, I, I I don't have a picket fence in front of my front yard, but but I understand. I'm one of those, uh, you know, the older ones. My son, who is 30, my daughter's 34, and uh, you know, it's like I'm talking to them when I'm talking to you right now about what you, <laughs> what, what you just explained there. Um, but a couple of the definitions. Uh, one of the places in the book, uh, you, you you quote somebody: uh, a house is a machine for living in, but machines break, become defunct, and outdated. And certain parts were out from use. And sometimes the machines stop working and you can never say why and what what is the cause. Now, in one respect, I'm thinking about my air conditioner and, uh, you know, maybe uh, the hot water heater or something. But you're also talking about, I think, uh, you know, life in that space metaphorically, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. The sort of relationships we have, these um, feelings of comfort that we have inside of home, they can become, they can fall into disrepair too. And maybe they're not necessarily something that could be fixed or you have to replace the whole thing entirely, like your water heater or your roof or whatever. Right. <laughs> so yeah, re- relationships don't come with a warranty, do they? Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or, or a very short one anyway. Uh, <laughs> So another place in the book, and this is in the place of master bath, it says uh, all rooms have four walls, a door, a window or two, a bed, a chair, perhaps a bidet. And you say, Gene Rise wrote in Good Morning Midnight, a room is a place where you hide from the wolves outside, and that's all any room is. Is that how you think of the house? You're hiding <laughs> You're hiding from the world. I think so. <laughs> I think that I love that book. Gene Rice is uh, wonderful. But yeah, I think... I think I think of my home as that. It's this like space where you keep all the wolves and monsters at bay and yeah. Lock up. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, and then the last, before we take our break here, you got this uh, chapter on backyard and you, you lead off a, a, a quote, more and more homeowners are fencing themselves in. It kind of reminded me of a country music song, you know, don't fence me in. <laughs> But uh, but they are, right? I mean, people put up fences. Now, we put up a fence to keep our dogs from getting out, but a lot of people put up fences to keep other people out, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? I mean, as someone who thinks that home is where we keep, you know, the wolves at bay, I, I can appreciate the idea of fence, but at the same time, I think I have a strong opposition to the sort of American um, – it's American adherence to individualism over community. And I think the fence is a symbol of that. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I like the idea of a house and one's private space, but I don't love the idea of um, the individual or one's nuclear family over all other people. So it's complicated. It is complicated. Long before, 
you know, our politicians started talking about building a really big fence between <laughs> us and, and right. Mexico. You know, fences are cropping up in our neighborhoods and all that kind of thing. So, all right, well, look, um, listeners, uh, we're going to uh, continue this uh, discussion on homemaking. Uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to have uh, another read. We're going to meet uh, one of Chloe's friends named Bo. Uh, we're going to do the writing life segment. We've got one final read here that uh, kind of touches again on the relationship of mother and daughter. So uh, please stay with us. Hey, listeners, I'd like to share some information with you about uh, four organizations that are important players in our literary community, and uh, they're also supporters of the podcast. Uh, Spark Publications, Charlotte Lit, Charlotte Writers Club, and North Carolina Writers Network. Spark Publications is one of our early supporters, and they have been sending me some uh, wonderful authors uh, with some well-designed books. They are an award-winning independent publishing firm that helps authors bring their work to life. They work strategically with their authors to help them complete their manuscripts, design their covers and books uh, for marketability, register their ISBNs and Library of Congress numbers, proofread, manage the print options, market, and much more. To find out more about how you can publish a nonfiction or art book with the support of an experienced team, check out sparkpublications.com. Charlotte Lit, otherwise known as Charlotte Center for Literary Arts, is an organization in which I'm a member. It's a nonprofit art center whose mission is to celebrate the literary arts by educating and engaging writers and readers through classes, conversations, and community. Uh, I really enjoy participating in those classes. Uh, they see themselves, and I do too, as a valued and vital part of the Charlotte arts community, and they've become a premier creative writing center for the region. You can find out more about them and how to participate at charlottelit.org. For 98 years, the Charlotte Writers Club has continued to offer a supportive writing environment in the greater Charlotte community. Uh, I was a board member of that uh, organization for a few years recently. Uh, really enjoyed uh, participating that way and also in their regular meetings, their contests, and their community organizations. They offer a monthly newsletter, uh, monthly meetings, and speakers. Yeah, I was speaker chairman too. Uh, they do critique groups, open mics, and... Uh, they offer writing workshops and writing contests. You can find out more about uh, Charlotte Writers Club at uh, charlottewritersclub.org. I'm also a member of the North Carolina Writers Network. Uh, they offer six annual competitions, three annual conferences, and I think I've attended uh, all three of those. Many online classes uh, and critiquing and editing services uh, for their members. They serve over 1,400 members in North Carolina and beyond. Uh, in all genres and all levels of experience uh, with all manner of publishing credits. To find out more about the North Carolina Writers Network, uh, check out ncwriters.org. As a writer and a reader, I have benefited from participating in all three of these writing organizations, Charlotte Writers Club, Charlotte Lit, and North Carolina Writers Network. It's been a great experience for me. I've also enjoyed collaborating with Spark Publications, meeting and uh, interviewing their authors and looking at their fine work. If you'd like to check out uh, what each of these uh, supporters has to offer, uh, go to our show notes, uh, scroll to the bottom, and you'll find information about each one, uh, links, and also a promo code. Hey, listeners, we're back. I'm with Lee Madalone. She's the uh, author of Homemaking, a debut novel that's gotten a lot of uh, great reviews. And uh, she uh, and I've been talking about uh, the characters, and one of the characters we hadn't talked about yet is a character named Bo. Um, Lee, tell us about Bo. So Bo is Chloe's best friend and confidant that's sort of shepherding her through her grief over her relationship, her marriage that's dissolving. And I like him the best he's he's just sort of a peculiar louisiana boy um at heart i mean he's an adult man but he's a sculptor he lives in rural virginia and teaches at a university but he lives in this sort of weird little apartment on the street and um yeah he's he's just sort of strange i think he's going through his own sort of reckoning with um setting down roots he's sort of avoiding it and um so it's it's a strange relationship to have with chloe he's sort of advising her on how to do that even though he's not really doing it himself so yeah Bo, he's he's a weirdo yeah so i, I was drawn to Bo too because he added a level of humor to to the book and also um you know because you know he's gay they're they have this relationship um it, 
very intimate relationship between the two of them, uh, but different in, in that way. And so, you know, while she's struggling, he's struggling too. And we learn a little bit about him and his home is even, <laughs> it, it's, I'm looking at your walls, no pictures, but he, his, his home is hardly, what well, he doesn't have any rugs, right? <laughs> yeah. He's got, I mean, he doesn't have much furniture. So why is that? Why is Bo, uh, is it because he doesn't feel grounded? He's not, he might not be here long or. I mean, he's lived in that apartment, I think, in at least five years. So I think it's just, I mean, he's not grounded. Um, his is, mo- I guess, the most literal um, representation of not being grounded. At least Chloe and Sybil have attempted to make homes that look like homes with furniture and paintings and rugs and all of that, whereas Bo doesn't really spend much time in his space and doesn't really think of himself as a Virginian, even though he's lived and teach there, taught there, sorry, a long time. So yeah, he's, I think he's a sort of good um, complement to the other characters as far as like an attachment to objects and things. He doesn't have that same relationship to stuff. Yeah. And, and in this part of the book, we're, we're learning a little bit about Bo and uh, sort of, you know, where he's been and um, and also a little bit about his past and how he found perhaps uh, more about his sexual um, orientation. So I don't know. Anything else you want to say to set this up? I don't think so at this time. I think okay. I'll just dive in. In college, no one knew I was a Louisiana boy. Texas confused my accent. When people asked me where I was from, I told them I never had a place that felt like home. I avoided the question. Now, when people ask, thinking my accent some peculiar scholarly affectation, I say home wasn't something meant for me. It's not an issue of geography. I've lived in Virginia for nearly 20 years now, but it's not home. I can't explain to you what that means. People associate home with comfort, a place to set down one's haunches, where one can make love and argue in privacy, rest, calm. Those things are unknown to me. I couldn't rest if I tried. Growing up, I was told boys weren't meant to love certain creatures, but I also said I was getting rebellious. When people say that about children, when they use that word rebel, like it's the equivalent of taking the Lord's name in vain, like it's uttering the name of the Antichrist, What they mean is that the young ones are learning to be people apart from their parents. What I mean to say is that as Alice became a fish, I was getting to be myself. I was opening my mouth and the love couldn't help but come out. Two boys stand outside a gas station off of I-10 on the outskirts of Lake Charles, Louisiana. In the wet, heavy summer night, the cigarette smoke conjured in anticipation alit by a lone street lamp. They discover a new kind of love in the other's mouth. As soon as it's discovered, it's gone. Tongues retreat, beads of sweat on their necks and in their armpits continue to bead, to multiply. The crosses pressed to the other's Adam apple settle back against their owner's shivering chest. The boys, as boys do, moved on. They created their own lives apart from one another. But as boys do, they never did forget. They never grew up entirely. So is that the observation of a, of a 30-year-old after watching boys for the last uh, 25 <laughs> years? Boy, boys never grow up. <laughs> I suppose one learns that after a certain amount of time on the earth. Yeah, well, it's still true, even at age 62. So, <clears throat> you know, we never grow up entirely, you know. Um, well, let's do this. Let's, let's talk about the writing life a little bit. Uh, you told me, um, Lee, that uh, you really like writing pretty sentences. You like the sounds of words. Is that sort of what you think of when you think of literary fiction, this uh, real focus on uh, the words themselves? I think certain types of literary, literary fiction pay a good deal of attention to how the words relate to one another, how they sound, the music they make, that kind of thing. I think I associate myself with that camp Um, when I pick up a book and read the first page, if it doesn't have that music, then I pretty much put it down (laughs) pretty quickly. Um, I could 
plot isn't the most interesting thing to me. I think what's happening on the line level is where um, all the complexity that I enjoy happens. Um, certainly there's other forms of literary fiction that, but um, I think what maybe I'm doing in my book is more aligned with those sentence writers, um, that kind of uh, obsession with words and sounds and such. Well, that's interesting because, you know, they, they talk a lot in writing when you're trying to sell books, you got to have this inciting incident. You got to pull readers in, you got to keep the pages turning, all this kind of stuff. But you're sort of saying that you like to get immersed you know, in the words, and it's not so much about how quickly you turn the page, but perhaps uh, how interesting, you know, the words on those pages are. I think conflict and plot can happen at the level of the sentence um, mm. versus, you know, the accumulation of chapters or, th or main events that happen. So um, I, I strive and not, don't always succeed in trying to create that those problems, those uh, complexities within a sentence. Interesting. So a lot of your publications, uh, Lee, have been shorter pieces. Um, a novel, of course, is a longer work. We talked a little bit about this before the podcast. Uh, did you set out to write a novel or did you just wake up one day and realized you had enough words that, hey, maybe this might be a novel? Uh, I never set out to write a novel. It was just a accident I suppose or um, I was working on different shorter things um, I was working on some iteration of the Chloe section that was about maybe 60 70 pages and threw that away um, and then one day I sat down and wrote that intro that's really quick and after some tinkering and thinking I realized that that section was connected to this other longer Chloe section I was working on um, so it was one of those instances where you realize I've heard other writers talk about this. You realize that whatever you're working with requires more pages and more exploration than you initially thought. So yeah, my stuff is pretty short and tight and I never thought I was capable of writing anything longer. Well, I hope you meant by throw away. I just, I put that in a folder on my computer and didn't pay attention to it. <laughs> yeah. It's somewhere on my computer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So talk about the differences a little bit in writing what you normally like to write the shorter pieces and then taking on this task of turning that into a novel. Is it something you aspire to do again? Was it a struggle? Was it enjoyable? Tell us about that. I think the experience is completely different. I think there's something really, um, sort of pure and refreshing to writing these really short, um, episodes, I guess you could call them, where the intensity is really contained. I love that just pressure that happens in these short pieces that doesn't really, it's really hard to sustain in longer work. But at the same time, I, I really feel this comfort and joy and joy, if you can call it that, of working on a longer project, um, knowing what you'll wake up to every day and have to sort of tackle. Um, so I do crave the working on a longer piece right now, but I'm, the times are making, I think it difficult to sustain that sort of um, engagement and focus. Interesting. So a little bit about process. Um, did you decide, okay, well, I'm working on my bathroom this week. So I'll write about bathrooms. <laughs> I'm going to clean, I'm going to work on my living room this week. So I'm working on living rooms. So. <laughs> no, it wasn't quite that uh, on the nose. <laughs> um honestly, I think when I wrote the book, it was in initially you would get these entire chunks um, of one character's perspective. So you get all of the Chloe section, all the bow section, all the civil section. Um, and it was only until I started working with my agent who suggested that we break it up um, by chapter, by room and alternating point of views, um, which I think was a really critical edit and change to the book and really made it um, all work together. So, um, yeah, the editing process allowed me to maybe compartmentalize the sections a bit more. Um, 
But yeah, it wasn't like I was working on my bathroom and then <laughs> I was like, I should write about the bathroom. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. it's not, it's not right what you know, right? <laughs> no, I mean, I was reading a lot of books about space making and aesthetics and design. I think I'm just interested in that stuff. And so that naturally just sort of fed into the creative work. Okay, good. A couple of uh, sort of open-ended writer life questions here. What's a fact about you as a writer uh, that... Uh, people might be surprised to learn. I doubt it's surprising, but I'm not good at sitting for more than a few hours. If that and working, I'm, I will be lucky if I can get, you know, a couple paragraphs in a day. I'm very slow. And, um, again, I think that comes from being very attuned to the words and the relationship between the words. And so I am hesitant to put anything down unless it sounds pretty good. Um, but I'm not one of those people who sets a, you know, I'm going to write a thousand words a day. I just can't do that. But I don't think this is surprising if you've read anything I've written. <laughs> well, no, you, you're a really good writer. I, I want to do this. You're, because you're one of the younger writers we've had on the show, I did this little lightning round of, uh, you know, either ors. You can pick either or, uh, sort of you as your writing life uh, or both or whatever. So here we go. Ink, pen, or keyboard? Keyboard. All right. Dictionary or spell check? Uh, both. Both. That's okay. Uh, outline or free flow? Free flow. Okay. In the light of day or the dark of night? Day. Day. Morning or afternoon? Morning. Complete quiet or some, some kind of music or noise in the background? Depends. Okay. On what? <laughs> My mood. <laughs> okay. What mood requires music? <laughs> If I'm feeling particularly um, like I don't want to write, I'll put headphones on and blast sort of dance music or something really quick and rapid. So I feel like I'm going to enter into that space. But sometimes yeah. I write quiet in the quiet. Writing the first draft or revising? As far as by preference or enjoyment? Yeah. Yes. Um, revising. Okay. And why is that? Cause that's when you make something really work and can pull out and work on highlighting all that you have in the first draft. I think that's where a book really comes together. So writing the work or submitting it for publication. Submitting. <laughs> Are you like submitting better? <laughs> I don't enjoy writing very much. So I think uh, <laughs> once it's done and out of your hands is a great feeling. No, wait a minute. You're, Okay, you're one of my first writers that says you don't enjoy writing very much. No right? way, no way. <laughs> come on, I come could, on. I could bring in a bunch of writers who say that writing is hell. Is that right? Okay, <laughs> which, which which part is hell? Because you obviously you're drawn to this you, this hell, you know, is pulling you in. I mean, there's something about the hell that draws you to it, right? There's something about it. I think it's a form of grappling with things you don't understand, or at least for me, it's a way of managing. Um, uncertainties. So I think it's like maybe a mental health thing, but I don't find, you know, like, I don't know if many people would say like going to therapy is fun or like a great joy. It's like, I'm doing work here. Um, so yeah, it's work. And uh, I don't know. Oh, well, I got to drill down a little bit here. <laughs> yeah, that's a loaded answer. <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, tell me about this when you get into the space of writing, because you're, you're describing a little bit about this idea of, okay, now I'm going to go to my desk and do it. But when you're in the space itself, how does it make you feel? When you're actually writing or when I'm actually writing something that I feel like has something to it that is, uh, it's hard to describe what that it is, but you know it when you have it. I think that's sort of one of the, I don't have a great adjective for that feeling. I think it's just like, oh yeah, this is sort of when I feel it most accomplished or like I achieved something for the day or I'm doing what I need to be doing with my life. So okay, yeah, I don't have an adjective. Kind of heaven or and hell in the writing process. So, so you teach students. I mean, I've got the teaching question here. Um, although I didn't ask you this last question is on the list, marketing or manual labor. What do you prefer? Manual labor. Yeah. <laughs> you mean like digging holes in a yard versus yes, marketing? Ex exactly. Oh, oh, yes. Any day, any hour. I was pruning trees a couple of days ago. I would prune a million trees before I could 
tweet something about my book or something. Yeah, I get that. Uh, but when you're talking to your students about writing, uh, do you describe this, uh, you know, this heaven and hell duo that, that writers undertake? I I usually teach introduction to creative writing, or so I I tend not to scare them <laughs> too much. If I think a lot of those writers think of writing as fun still, so I don't want to ruin that for them. And if you do think writing is fun, that's great. But um, I think I just tend to emphasize that writing is a lot of work and that revision is a really important part of writing. It's not just the first draft. It's like about the subsequent drafts um, that is equally important. So I belabor the labor aspect, but I don't try to tell them writing's the worst thing in the world <laughs> necessarily. Uh, that's good. Well, Lee, I sometimes uh, ask authors, you know, what would you tell your younger writing self, something you've learned in your writing years that uh, might help your younger writing self, but you're still your younger writing self. <laughs> so I'm going I'm yeah. to amend this uh, a little bit to just say, you know, as a young and uh, writer who's got a new novel out, uh, well, what do you, advice do you have for other young uh, first-time authors out there navigating this process? You know, set the pandemic aside. That'll be a separate <laughs> separate amendment to the question, but mm -hmm. uh, just the process itself. Um, I guess don't think that once you publish one book that that will make you feel like a writer or like that is the end of things. Your first book is just your first book and they're will be others that you will have to go on the same sort of struggle with. So um, yeah, don't put all your eggs in that first book, I guess, <laughs> or like do your best, but understand that this is a long, long process in life that you're going to be living. And um, yeah, there's more, more work to be done. Yeah. I mean, Elizabeth Gilbert in the book, Big Magic talks about how you shouldn't be too attached to your written work. You shouldn't treat it as your baby because, you know, at some point you're going to have to sell it. You might have to cut it in half. You might have to, you know, pawn it off to somebody or something. Uh, so, you know, you shouldn't get too attached. And I think what you're saying is, uh, is good. I mean, you're, you're saying, okay, we, this is a start, you know, this is not the be all and end all of everything. So in other words, if somebody trashes your book, so what, write another one, you know, and, right. you, and then if it's, you get a lot of good reviews, like you've gotten, don't worry about the fact that, uh, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can do that again. I don't know if I can get, you know, just get back in there, roll up your sleeves and get at it. Right. I mean, I'm struggling with this now of like, yeah, right. just work. Don't, I think that after there's a lot of, um, a number of writers who struggle after the first book, I think to figure out how to move forward, especially in a pandemic, I think, but, uh, yeah, it's, a, it, I think it's important at least for me to remind myself that, you know, just to be with words, even if they're not great <laughs> now, after the second book, every day, just a little bit, just like what I was doing when I was writing my first book, you know, start the process over, just keep yeah. going. One foot in front of the other, one line after another. Kind <laughs> yes. Of thing. Yes. Yes. Uh, all right. Well, look, uh, we, we're going to have one final read here and uh, this is closer to, um, the end of the book, we're not giving anything away here. It's just, uh, it's the relationship. The mother is in town. She's visiting, um, with Chloe. Um, Chloe doesn't know it, but you know, her mother is sort of in touch with her ex husband. And, uh, this is a scene where I think you wrote it in two perspectives, two points of view. Um, you're going to read one of those points of view now, by the way, which one are we in now? I'm trying to see here. Which, uh, uh, yeah, this is Chloe's point of view, I think. Yeah, yeah, this is her chapter. Yeah, but then you know, there's another chapter where the mother, I think, like all parents, are like, I was just trying to say, you know, yeah, I really do like what you're doing, and maybe in this read, the daughter's a little resistant, maybe doesn't think it's you know true praise and that kind of thing. So you can still sense at this point in the book that the mother and the daughter aren't quite on the same page when it comes to communication. Um, and that's what happens in a home too, right? Communication. In theory. <laughs> in, yeah. Supposed to happen in a home? <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right. What do you want to say to set this up? So 
Sybil, Chloe's mother, is visiting her in her home for the first time, and they are in the kitchen, and Chloe has just made a pie, and she's having her mother try it. I made it, I say to my mother. We hover over the kitchen island, looking down at a surprisingly perfect, to both of us, pie. Really? I didn't know you baked. Is this something you're doing now? I thought I could learn, finally, at the tender age of 34. Above our heads, the single bulb of the ceiling lamp illuminates the bulbous red of the pie's cherries. Encapsulated by light, we cannot make out the shapes of trees outside. The yard reads black. If someone were to peer in at us, a someone we couldn't see through the dark, they would think we looked like actors on a movie set. We look staged, play-acting domesticity. My mother eats the pie, dutifully and with a glimmer of pleasure. Is it good at all? This is a new recipe. Aren't they all new? And yes, it's perfect. This is what we are supposed to do after dinner in this house, right? I say. What are you saying? I said the pie was great. I don't know if I'm doing any of this right. Her hands are on my face. Her fingers are sticky on my cheeks. She rubs her thumbs away from my nose, mixing the red juice with my dew, repeating this motion like she's painting my face. Her thumbs sing, it's right, it's right, it's right. Some women do this all their lives. Iron, rear, sweep, wash, fold, brush, wipe. For the entirety of their adult lives, they make homes, they make other people, they make families. This is just to say that what I'm doing is not so unusual. It's the opposite. This act is completely mundane. But no one talks about how difficult it is. I don't think it's any easier for a woman with a pretty husband and a pretty six-year-old daughter. Beneath the prettiness, we are all a mess. We are all struggling. We do not know how to make a home. Let's leave bleach stains on the darks together. Let's put too much sugar in the cake and celebrate our efforts, our failures. Let's commemorate the spoiled milk, the missed school bus, the unwashed faces at bedtime, the unmown yard. So I think this is a great uh, section to bring this to a close because you know what you're saying here, I think, Lee, and this is just my interpretation, but that is that, um, you know, Building a home, uh, doing family, raising children can be messy, and um, you don't always get it right. In fact, a lot of times you don't get it right at all, and yet you're saying you should celebrate all the moments, right, in that process, because you can't necessarily—nobody's perfect. Right. Am am I close? (laughs) Yes, I think you're pretty close. (laughs) Okay. Well, I love this part of the book where they both look down at a surprisingly perfect, to both of us, pie. (laughs) Do you bake, Lee? I do. Do you? Okay. You bake? You bake? Yeah. I think I'm a better cook and baker than Chloe, I I think. Well, I mentioned to you my son, who's 30. He lives in uh, Denver now, and when this pandemic hit, He's like texting my wife, how do you bake this or that? And suddenly he's baking something. I'm Mm -hmm. like, he's really, really bored. (laughs) But uh, I think he had a problem with the the yeast or something. It didn't come up the first time. So he he, he fixed it later. Well, listen, uh, Lee, this has been great. I've enjoyed having a conversation with you about this book. It it was, uh, you know, you don't know all the time when you get into a book what you're going to find. And, uh, I found myself slowing down and and thinking and uh, smiling and contemplating some of the different pieces of this. It's uh, I guess it's it's not so much a how to, but it's uh, it's how to reflect on these issues, right? Yeah, I don't think it. I hope it doesn't offer any answers right, <laughs> or, right. or easy comforts, but just sort of so offering some ideas to ponder a little bit. Yeah. So. Um, are you working on short pieces now or something longer? Um, short pieces. And I had a longer project that I was working on before the pandemic and I've sort of put that on hold. So um, yeah, just trying to 
write some nice sentences if possible right now. Small goals. Well, you know, books, um, you know, can be around for a while. So when we get through this pandemic, you can go out and do all those events again. And and I, I wonder if that'll happen in the writing world. Hopefully so. People can get out and actually communicate eye to eye and face to face and, you know, with folks and talk about it. But hey, Lee, it's been so much fun having you on the uh, on Charlotte Rears podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by OrthoCarolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. OrthoCarolina, you improved.